0: Welcome to Scraps, a podcast where we explore the stories of the people who are behind the science and innovation. This is your host, Arun Sridhar, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jojo Platt. My interest in the topic we're going to discuss today started when I was a graduate student at The Ohio State University. Dr. Lonnie Thompson, who was an accomplished researcher in the area, um, and the university website was filled with stories of his exploits from Antarctica. Many of you will remember Dr. Thompson as a scientist in in Al Gore's movie, who demonstrated that the changes in air bubbles trapped in the drilled ice tubes that were obtained from the region And just like rings in a tree that determine the age of the tree, the trapped air bubbles demonstrated how our environment has changed. And now fast forwarding to when we first launched this podcast and when we put out our first episode, I was contacted by my graduate advisor and mentor. I asked if she would have uh, anyone that she would suggest that we talk to as a guest on the podcast and she immediately mentioned our guest today. Our guest is a very accomplished researcher, and as a scientist in the field of environmental sciences, she has managed to study the impact of climate change and how chemistry can be a valuable tool to assess the impact. Above all, she has risen in the ranks in the last 15 years, from being an assistant professor to being the founding director of Villanova Center for Energy and Environmental Education to now being the Associate Vice Provost for Research at Villanova University in my brief research that we did prior to this interview it is very clear that she's held in very high regard by her students and trainees which for me is always a hallmark of a very good teacher um, we have so little time and so much to cover and we are excited to welcome dr Amanda grannis to scraps welcome thanks for having me
1: so uh, dr Grannis I have a um, just a background question and and one that we encounter frequently, which is how, how did you get interested in the field of chemistry and, and, and photochemistry in particular?
2: So I'm not like probably a lot of folks in the science field and that I had, um, a bit of inspiration when I was younger. And so I had uh, a really fantastic high school science teacher, uh, who really kind of, um, you know, stoked my interest in science for the longest time. I actually was planning to major in music when I went to college, um, so I'm a, I'm a bit of a, mu- a musician as well. And so um, that was that was something that I had been thinking about for a long time. And then um, I had a, a high school. He taught chemistry, physics, and earth science. And uh, Mr. Williams, Jim Williams, and he, I went to one of the smallest public. High schools in Pennsylvania, and one of um, the most underfunded. And so we didn't have a lot of the the you know bells and whistles and and fun toys to play with that maybe other school districts did. So we kind of bootstrapped it. We we made it up as we went along. If if he needed a, a device for a demonstration, we'd figure out how to make it ourselves. Um, so it was a bit of MacGyvering as as we went along. In our classes. And I think that just kind of stoked in me that, that curiosity and I've always been a tinkerer. Um, so I was sort of, um, uh, you know, I always kind of followed my dad around cars and he was a woodworker and, and those sorts of things. And so I would always kind of had a little bit of a tinkering gene in me uh, and then that experience just kind of added to it. So then that kind of got me on the path to exploring science in college. I majored in chemistry. Um, And then as I went along in my progression through college, and then I went to graduate school, um, that's kind of when the specific area that I wanted to focus on turned toward environmental work was was more in grad school. So
0: So you actually have what you just described there was very humble beginnings uh in in terms of where you grew up and your family so do you want to tell us a bit more about uh, about your kind of humble kind of upbringings in beyond just what you've told us uh i think there is a story there in terms of <laughs> yeah, de- definitely, a, definitely a graduate in the family so.
2: Uh, yeah so um i uh, i grew up in rural central pennsylvania um sort of you know what some folks might call sort of the Northern edge of the Appalachians, um, Appalachian country. And so uh, my, my parents were both blue collar workers. Um, My dad uh, was a heavy equipment mechanic for many years. He worked on in um, coal mining industry, uh, construction, um, those sorts of things. And uh, so I was actually a first gen, first generation college student um, with you know, diving into the world of college was, um, kind of diving into the deep end of the pool (laughs) without swimmies, (laughs) without the waders. And so, uh, that was, you know, but luckily I had a really good support system and the school that I went to, Juniata College, um, was just really fantastic in giving students, regardless of their backgrounds, um, just fantastic opportunities that you wouldn't have even otherwise imagined. You know, I, as the, you know, you know, the poor kid from central Pennsylvania who'd really never traveled out of the state, you know, Juniata got me thinking about, you should, you should go abroad for a year, spend your junior year abroad. It was just sort of like, yeah, that's what you do. Just go do it. And so that, you know, I spent my uh, junior year abroad in Leeds, England um, at the university there And, you know, just the, the doors that that opened and, and the world that that opened to me to think about life beyond my small rural upbringing. Um, you know, I have to I have to give a lot of credit to my to my college um, for for giving me those experiences and, and encouraging me to think about those experiences. That's where I first got into science research. I did summer projects with one of my chemistry professors there. Um, And, you know, otherwise, if that wouldn't have been an opportunity, I would have been, you know, working at McDonald's or a coffee shop or delivering pizzas or something, you know, to make money. Um, But they had these programs that you got paid money in the summer to do research. And so I think now in the position I'm at at Villanova, you know, giving those same kinds of experiences to our students and having those opportunities and and making sure they're paid experiences so that students who have financial need can still um, take part in that, where it's not something that they have to give up a financial piece of their, of their puzzle um, to have an experience like an internship or research. I think that's a really um, important thing that universities need to be thinking about is our, Are you potentially um, reducing opportunities for students from lower socioeconomic groups by how your programs are set up? If you're not paying students over the summer or if you're not providing them transportation or if you're not providing them housing, um, then you're you're actually neglecting a significant part of your population who are really smart and really bright and really excited to do this work. But there's a financial reality behind that, that that needs to be recognized. So that's something that I'm really passionate about now in the role I have at Villanova, making sure that's kind of top of mind for, for everyone as they plan you know, these kinds of programs for students.
1: So it sounds like in your, in your education experience that the doors weren't closed to you because you didn't even have a perception of there being doors to begin with. And it sounds like you're kind of, passing on that same mentality by planning on the back end for, uh, students who have the financial and access challenges. Um, so where, where else, how can other people in your position now, um, kind of pursue and provide the same kind of thoughtfulness to the programming at their universities?
2: So I think a certain aspect of it certainly is, is financial. The university needs to recognize that they they should be investing in their students in that way and, and not just, you know, as part of the academic year. There are so many experiences that extend beyond the traditional coursework, um, kind of like the nine to five, so to speak, of, of a student's career um, when they're in college. And so thinking about how um, you know how universities network with their alumni to provide opportunities for students for placements in companies over the summer and not just as an experience potentially but also as a pathway for them to get potentially into that company for career outcomes um, you know I, you know we have to be thinking about sort of the whole the whole lifetime of the student not just the Two or four years. Um, And so thinking about how you set up a a trajectory of success for students and whether that's by these paid summer research experiences or um, using your networks that you have as a result of your local companies, the local economic connections you might have through your alumni networks, um, thinking about how you set your students up for that longer term success, not just, you know, the GPA metrics or the SAT score metrics and things like that. But how do you kind of set up a student for a lifetime of success um, while taking into account the realities that they're experiencing as they navigate that path? So. And that takes it takes financial um, investment in, in the students. So.
1: So you said um, Mr. Williams, your, your high school science teacher, was the first one to ignite the passion for science in you. Who have there, been some other role models throughout the course of your education and, and now your career as an educator and researcher?
2: Oh, my gosh. So many. <laughs> um, so I would say at, at sort of each stage in my education and career path, I have been so blessed to have wonderful mentors. I know from the experiences of my colleagues and and friends and just, you know, the the contacts you make on Twitter and social media. uh, I know in many cases that's not the norm um, that unfortunately a lot of folks don't get adequate mentorship as they go through. So that's why I'm so passionate about being a mentor to others now that I'm kind of risen through the ranks. Um, but my in, in college, the, I had fantastic professors. It was a really small net community. Um, we only had 1,600 students in total at the whole college. Um, so uh, most everybody knew everybody. And my you know my advisor who I did the summer research with each of the summers that I was there, um, he was fantastic. We you know, they had, seminar series where they would bring people in from other universities or companies to give talks. And they were very diligent about making sure that the students had face time with those folks. So that's actually what got me one of my connections to where I actually went to graduate school, Purdue University. Um, And so that, you know, it's just it's just kind of thinking about the little things that make an impact. You know, it's that one connection you make, that one conversation you make that, that can get a student thinking about, oh, maybe I ought to think about that grad school. Maybe I ought to look at that program. I didn't consider them before. Let me think about that. Um, and so sometimes I think it's things that we, when we're later in our careers, we, we just take that for granted and we don't think about the impact that has. Um, so being very mindful of making and helping your students make those connections, I think is really important. Um, so that that connection that I made as an undergrad then kind of propelled me to think about a particular grad school. Then I ended up going to that school, Purdue university for graduate school. Um, I had a fantastic PhD advisor there who was the person that actually got me involved in Arctic research and the photochemistry. We we mentioned that earlier. Um, So that was actually a connection that I made kind of by accident Um, when I went to uh, apply for, for to be a graduate student at Purdue, I was bound and determined I was going to work for this other professor. That was who I had my, my eyes set on. That's who I wanted to work with. I had my whole life planned out how it was going to roll out when I worked with this person, right? So I went to campus for this interview, um, or like the visit weekend. And the way Purdue did it in the chemistry department is if If you kind of said what area of chemistry you wanted to work in, which I said I wanted to work in analytical chemistry, they had you meet with as many of the analytical professors as they could squeeze in during your visit. And this the the professor I ended up working with was actually the last person on my schedule for the day. It was kind of the end of the day, your brain is full, you're tired. <laughs> it's been a marathon. And, uh, so I'm like, okay, well, I, I got to meet with this person. I don't want to just blow them off or whatever. And so we sat down and he just lit up with excitement and passion about his projects. And he said, well, what do you want to do? What are you interested in? And I said, well, I'm a tinkerer, right? Like I want to build instruments. And, you know, I think I want to work for this. And I mentioned the professor's name. He's like, oh, that's great. He's wonderful. You would do really well there. But, I think you would have fun in my group too because you can do that same thing you can build this instrument and then you can take it to the arctic and test it out and i was like wait what <laughs> and so then he went off he said yep i just got this project funded i'm looking for a grad student to take on you know this project so it would mean you'd be basically at the north pole next year about this time <laughs> and uh so i'm like oh my gosh, this, this sounds really exciting. Let me learn more. And I, I had one of those moments where it was just a shift. I totally shifted gears and ended up getting in this person's um, Paul Shepson into his research lab, took on this project. A year later, I'm setting foot off of a, um, uh, airplane at 82 degrees North latitude in January. (laughs) 40 below when you step off the plane all bundled up in my parka and my cold weather gear. And I, I was there for four months. So that was my first field experience ever was four months in the Arctic at 82 degrees North latitude. Um, so again, jumping into the deep end of the pool. Uh, and that it just, that sealed the deal. That was, I'm like, I'm hooked. I am doing field research. I'm doing environmental research this Arctic stuff is so cool, literally and figuratively, <laughs> uh, and I'm in. Like that's it. I'm done. This is it, and that's you know, here I am now, still doing Arctic research. And
0: so it was. It wasn't so much about the polar bears or or the other wildlife that you were going to see free of cost while you were there. It was more about the the chemistry that motivated you. Is that what you're saying there? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it was. It was sort of that that project of. You know, I knew I knew what kind of work I wanted to do, generally speaking, that I wanted I wanted to build instrumentation and make measurements no one was able to make before. That was sort of my grand my grand scheme. Um, But when I when I talked to to Paul Shepson, when I was, you know, there visiting Purdue for that first weekend to decide if this was the school I was going to go to um, that that one conversation changed everything. So that's one thing that I always try to tell students is you certainly can have your ideas of what you want to do and where you want to go and who you think you want to be, but don't close doors before you're sure you want them closed. Like keep your mind open about what you want to do, where you want to go and what types of things you want to focus on because I am like the living, breathing example of one conversation completely changing your direction. and here I am years later, because of that one conversation that I had when I was tired and cranky at the end of a long day <laughs> and yeah. and it changed it changed the whole trajectory of where I went with my my career. So.
0: yeah, that's fantastic because I think that that is also. Echoing one of the thoughts of one of our earlier guests on the podcast, Kit Parker, who actually told us that education gave him the vocabulary to address a question, but it's really the experience that gave him the framework to apply those tools to answer a question, which I think you actually gave a very wonderful introduction about the fact that you wanted to build and you were a tinkerer. And you love to study, and your and your PhD was in analytical chemistry, and that's what you wanted to pursue for your grad school and beyond. Um, in very simple terms, can you actually tell us about some of the more fundamental techniques in chemistry, the tools that enable you to answer the questions? What are the various aspects of work that you do, and and how do you go about doing it using some of the features that you describe, being a tinker? building stuff and and using that with or marrying that with experience for both yourself as well as your your group
1: and what is photochemistry fundamentally ah, yes okay so um so i
2: guess we can kind of peel back the layers of the onion here um so for those folks that are listening that may not kind of Know everything about chemistry and the different fields of it. Um, there are various different kind of subfields under the umbrella of chemistry, and so you've got your organic chemists that are working. They do a lot of synthesis and they build molecules. And it's often the organic chemists that are doing pharmaceutical research, and you know a lot of like the carbon-based chemistry, building molecules, uh, doing that sort of stuff. You have inorganic chemists who tend to focus more on metal. Um, related chemistry. Uh, You've got biochemists who are interested in the biological ties that involve chemistry, you know, a lot of, you know, the enzymes and how the things happen in the body and, and, you know, how viruses and bacteria impact processes in the body and that kind of stuff. Um, You've got uh, physical chemistry, which is sort of, um, they're, uh, they're the ones that are sort of tying fundamental kind of physics in how that impacts chemistry. So, how uh, changing the temperature is going to impact how fast a reaction progresses, and, and why is that, and what's the underlying change in that? You know, in the thermodynamics that make that happen. You know, they're the very the the math folks really like physical chemistry. Um, lots of equations in that part. Um, and then there's analytical chemistry which in my mind is one of the coolest fields because we get to touch all the others. Um, So analytical is typically described as we want to know what's there and how much. Um, So if you have, um, if if there's a chemical spill and there's chemicals leaking into, into a river, it's the analytical chemists who are going to come in and make the measurements to figure out what chemicals are leaking? How much is in there? Where is it going? How far downstream is it going to get? You know, are these chemicals going to degrade in any way? Or are they going to, you know, sit there for years and years and years? You know, that's where the analytical folks tend to, tend to come in. Um, the tools we use to answer those questions are really wide and varied. Um, it can be something as simple as, you know, you can, you can make pH measurements the, you know, acidity or how acidic or basic something is. Um, and, and you can make inferences based on pH of what's happening in your, in your stream or in your well water or, you know, whatever thing you might be interested in analyzing. Or you can get really, really complicated and sophisticated equipment that can measure things down to, you know, like sort of single molecule type measurements um, and you can characterize what those molecules are and where they came from and what's happening to them over time. And so it really kind of runs the gamut of, of the things you can do and the questions you can answer in, in that field. And we're often drawing from those sort of adjacent fields like biochemistry or organic or inorganic. And so we kind of get, I, I, I call it analytical. We have to be the jack of all trades. Because we have to understand enough about the other fields to pull that in to help us answer our questions um, and then make some kind of an assessment of, OK, well, what's the impact then of that? You know, I've I've made this measurement of this thing and I've found some concentration of some molecule in my food sample. Well, What does that mean? Should I be worried? You know, I, I, I can measure this pesticide. Is it enough that I care about? You know, so that's where the biochemists come in and they say, ah, nah, you can you can eat lots of that stuff before it hurts you, right? <laughs> Even though I can measure it at the tiniest, most minuscule concentration. And that's where I think the fun part kind of comes in and, and where the reality of the impact of what we do comes in. Because it's not just just presenting someone with a number isn't enough. You have to give them context for how to interpret that. Right. Like if I tell someone you have lead in your drinking water. Is is that is that going to panic them? Should it panic them? Should they be doing something about it? Or is this that I'm just I have the equipment that's good enough to measure such a trace amount. But, you know, you're you're breathing in that much and, and what you're drinking has no impact on actually what's happening, you know, for you in terms of your own health. I have to be able to provide that context for that person. I can't just give them a number and say, okay, do with it what you want. That's the number. That's your, To me, that's irresponsible of me to do that. And so that's where I think some of the conversations about, you know, scientists shouldn't be, just, you know, just give us the numbers and we'll let the politicians figure out what to do with it. <laughs> I don't know that that's the best course of action. <laughs> I think scientists have a responsibility to help provide interpretation and context and what are next steps? What's sensible? um, What's reasonable? What should we be getting worried about? Um, That's where I think there's, sometimes there's a mismatch in expectations of what scientists should and shouldn't be doing.
0: So I would almost go out on a limb and say that scientists should actually be opinionated and be opinionated, driven by facts and data that ultimately enables them to form an opinion and as a result of that opinion, form a recommendation. What the decision makers do as a result of that recommendation or opinion is left to them. Ideally, in matters like these that ultimately dictates how much toxic chemicals there are in a certain kind of portable water or or kind of oil spill uh, in, in the sea or other aspects of food additives and how much is permissible, etc. I think I would probably argue that scientists should actually be the decision makers that ultimately uh, act on the opinion that are given by other scientists. Uh, so, But th- that is my personal opinion. I, I think that it should be data driven decision. And I'm sure you would agree on that. But that's not, I think, where we are. And uh, it's sometimes in, in science, I think, the most important aspect of this, and especially when you talk about small quantities or minuscule quantities that you can still measure using an analytical techniques, how do you, as a scientist, and I think it's important for people to understand, when you're measuring something that's that small, preferably in some cases parts per million or, or other aspects, how do you ensure that it is accurate, is reproducible and reliable data that you can ultimately take to form an opinion? Mm-hmm.
2: So that is um, basically the bread and butter of an analytical chemist's day-to-day. We are very um, tied to two terms, and that's accuracy and precision. So accuracy is how, how good am I at getting the right number, the accurate number, the number that represents what's really there. Um, And then there's precision, which is, you know, if you give me 10 different samples from the same source and I make that measurement 10 different times, am I getting the same number each time? Or is my methodology giving me variability that isn't really representative of what's in the sample? It's it's um, an artifact in a way of of my my analytical technique. Um, and so we have, there are, there are books written about how to ensure, um, you know, wh- what we would call like quality control and quality assurance, um, you know, the quality of your measurements and that you're getting the accurate information and you can get that time after time, after time, measurement, after measurement, after measurement. After measurement. Um, so often there's a lot of different ways to get at that. Um, there are, we always work with what we call Standards. So if you're measuring something like, um, you know, a pesticide in, in water runoff, um, you would have a, a known sample of that pesticide. You, could, you know, you can buy these from chemical companies or you might have to synthesize it on your own or, or whatever, but you would have a known amount of that material that you're always comparing to. Um, so you have your sample that has some own unknown amount in it, and then you have samples that you have made that you know... Cause you made them yourselves with known quantities of known materials and you can compare how, how are those measurements lining up with each other? Um, so that's comparison to standards. Uh, you can do all sorts of other things where sometimes we don't have really good, um, you know, there's all these sort of new, new products that are emerging. Uh, so one, one question I didn't answer of Jojo's that I just recognized was I didn't talk about what photochemistry was. Um, so photochemistry is basically chemistry that's driven by light. And as an environmental chemist, the, typically the light we care about is the sun. So what we often find is you you have something that's exposed to sunlight and it will undergo some chemical reaction and turn into something else. Um, and so sometimes because this is basically Mother Nature's chemistry at work, um, Sometimes the things that, that those original materials um, turn into, they're new things that we don't we don't have in our chemical catalog. We can't go order it from a company to then do comparisons. So that's where often we then partner up with the organic chemists and we say, hey, I need you to make me some of this stuff so that I have my standards, so that I can go out and measure these things and make the comparison.
1: So we, we got, um, you were talking about working with, the um, organic chemist to help you create that sample library so that you have standards?
2: Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy about chemistry is that we're so, we tie to so many other areas, like we were interdisciplinary. And so if you, if you make sure you have the right connections and the right collaborations, even though synthesis isn't my shtick, like that's, not my interest and not my expertise and not what gets me excited. I can go down the hall to my friend or I can call up the colleague at another institution and say, Hey, I've got this issue. Can you help me out with it? And then you can kind of put the ball in their court and they can help you. And then, you know, come back and you've got the work, the stuff you need and they've, you know, done what they've needed to do. And, you know, you move on with, with the problem you're trying to solve. So um, that's, to me, that's a really fun aspect of chemistry in particular, but I think a lot of science, and especially now that science is kind of moving to be thinking about these really big problems, um, no one individual field is gonna solve a particular problem like you know, environmental pollution um, or, or green chemistry um, or clean energy, that sort of thing. We all really have to come together And bring our various different areas of expertise together to work on solving a problem. And so, you know, having those collaboration skills and communication skills, I think, is really vital. So, you know, kind of going back to that student mentorship piece from earlier, you know, I think that's one of the key things that I try to train for for my students is that they have those, a lot of people call them soft skills skills. I don't think that gives enough credence to how important those skills are. That makes it sound like, well, it would be nice if you had that. Like, no, these are critical skills that students need to have. Because if you can't communicate and collaborate and and do that effectively, you're not going to be an effective scientist. Not in today's
0: age. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you, to rate us on your podcast application.
1: So I, I think you've you've kind of led us up beautifully to the big question that everybody wants to ask. And, and I'm sure that when people discover your field of expertise, that you get this question a lot. So you've teed us up well with providing context and that a number doesn't mean anything without that context. And then also delving into accuracy and precision and then you you i think you call her mother nature as a chemist yeah. <laughs> and the impact that that her influences have on what we experience or are starting to document as as climate change how much of of what we're experiencing do you perceive as being a natural course of action versus the result of human impact
2: Okay. So there's, there's a lot in that question. Um, So we know without a doubt that climate on earth has changed in the past over and over and over again. So we can go back in ice cores. um, So mentioned early on, it's sort of in the introduction. um, You can, you can dig down and get a core of ice that has been deposited over hundreds of thousands of years. And as that ice is deposited, it's basically creating a record of what was in the atmosphere at the time that that snow was deposited and then it eventually kind of got crushed down and formed into ice. And so we can actually analyze those ice cores like you would analyze tree rings to get growth cycles and how much stuff was deposited at any one particular time. You can go back and you can see um, soot layers from when there was a really large volcanic eruption. Um, and so we can we can use this among many other things. You can do this in ocean sediments. Um, you can do this in all sorts of different areas. Um, my area that I tend to have the most experience in is, is ice cores because I've, I've worked on ice cores. I've actually worked with Lonnie Thompson at Ohio State. Um, so he he and his wife, Ellen Mosley-Thompson, are a fantastic team that have just unveiled so much information in this area of ice core analysis. It's just kind of amazing what has, you know, what we've learned from their work and and the work of many others. Um, But basically you can look at those cycles of various different um, components of, of earth's atmosphere over time. And in ice cores, we can go back hundreds of thousands of years, almost a million years. And we see earth's climate changes Cyclically, and it has for hundreds of thousands of years. So, temperatures go up, temperatures go down, you get ice ages, you get interglacial periods. It's very kind of clockwork and it's tied to things like how the earth is rotating around the sun, the tilt of the axis of the earth. A little bit of a wobble can actually make a really big difference in in global temperature. What we also know from the same scientists that teased out this long history of climate perturbations on Earth. What we also know from those same scientists is we have exacerbated the warming of this planet at a rate much faster than any warming we have ever seen in what we can track historically in these chemical and physical records on Earth. So that is a fact that is known many different scientists have confirmed it in various different records. Um, So one of the things that as an analytical chemist, we always like to have is at least two different ways to confirm something. So two different methods that are, that are looking at it from two completely different ways. It's, it's, if one method might be biased you have a separate, independent method that can give you that same piece of information. Well, we have that data in climate science, so you can look at, um, you know, things that are. You you, you can look at how um, ocean sediments and different measurements of things in ocean sediments. You can look at ice cores. Uh, you can look at fossil records and things that are preserved in these like coccolithophores and, and different things like that. There are all these different ways and everyone has independently confirmed the same story. So our thermometers only go back so far, right? So we have the human record that we've been able to capture since the time that we've had weather records and thermometers and temperatures being recorded. And that gets us back so far, but then we have to rely on basically mother earth's, <laughs> chemistry um, mother nature's chemistry to to tell us what happened before humans walked the planet. So the same scientists that teased out this story, um, this information about what happened on planet earth, hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago, those same scientists are the ones that are telling us based on the trajectory of how our temperatures are changing, how fast they're changing what the CO2 level in the atmosphere is now, how that ties to temperature, those same scientists are the ones that are saying this can only be due to fossil fuel burning. That is what is, it has exacerbated the increase in temperature that we are seeing now, that are, we are now seeing impacts of that locally locally. So we're seeing unprecedented hurricane seasons. We're seeing unprecedented strengthening of hurricanes where they're strengthening far more quickly over the same, you know, hurricane track as anything that has happened in when we've recorded it. The wildfires in the West. Is there a forest management story there? Absolutely. That's not the whole story. And so that's, that's one of the issues where, A lot of times someone will, they, they have an agenda. They'll find one piece of data that helps back up that agenda and they ignore the 99 other pieces of data that go against it. So it's something we call confirmation bias. So you, you have a story that you think is the right thing or you have an agenda that makes you want that story to be right. So you will find that one piece of thing that backs up your story and you just kind of conveniently forget the ninety nine other things that don't back up your story. So that's kind of where I see us now. And and the argument that I make for folks that say, you know, ah, climate has always changed. Why are we getting so upset about it, et cetera? I'm like, I get it. I get that climate has changed. That is an absolutely true statement. But we're changing it far more rapidly and far more aggressively and warming it beyond what we have seen in the past. And it's the same scientists that you trust to use your data point of, well, the climate has always changed. So you'll trust the scientists on that point, but you won't trust us on this piece of data that we're trying to tell you is an important piece of data that you need to pay attention to. So that's where sometimes I get a little frustrated because it's like, don't don't use us and our data to back up one part of your story, and then conveniently ignore the other part of the story that we are trying to convey. So, sorry, that was a little soapboxish there. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, a couple a couple a couple things come to mind. So, something that sort of really um, strikes strikes at my heart is. On, on the side of those who are saying, you know, climate change is happening, it's it's man-made, we need to do something about it. In some cases, not all, but in some cases, there has been a very strident tone that those folks take. There's often been a very um, sort of like the blame game being played. And what what really kind of breaks my heart is when you hear these um, narratives about, um, you know, the, the, the evils of those who are working in the fossil fuel industry. And while I certainly understand that, that those at sort of the highest levels of decision-making in the CEOs, there's accountability there that they need, that, that has to happen. These fossil fuel companies have known for decades they, we, we have documents, their own internal documents that say burning fossil fuels is causing climate change, but there's enough money in here that it's worth it, basically. <laughs> um, it's when that um, frustration, I guess, comes down to, like, an individual worker. And you see people getting in the face of, like, you know, coal miners and, and folks at, at, you know, political rallies and stuff. And, and there's this sense of like, they're an evildoer. My dad was a coal miner, you know, coal put food on our table and paid the mortgage when I was growing up. And so it breaks my heart when it gets like personal like that. Like we, we need to take that personal piece out of it. And again, like the data driven decisions, Right. And this is where if, if, if things impacted people personally, I think they would be much more apt to make changes in their day to day or in what they're advocating for in what they're investing in Um, you know, what, what kind of companies are part of their mutual funds. You can, you can get investment strategies that do not have fossil fuels included, right. Um, Giving people that information I think is important, but until it's something that hits them personally. And that's one of the problems with climate change is those of us in the most developed countries are not going
0: to feel the impacts nearly as quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So it's neither ignorance nor lack of understanding, but it is just circumstantial deniability, which seems to plague the system here for for, for someone like me who comes from more tropical climates, which is where I originally come from. The variance in the amount of monsoons that we get in India and the amount of rainfall and the periods and the extremes of how you can go through extensive periods of droughts, get unseasonal rains that will completely kind of um, make harvests in agriculture kind of look for those processes to actually go down the drain. We kind of see examples of that throughout every single month as we kind of go by year after year. Um, and I'm just going to ask you one more thing. I think you expressed your deep felt kind of uh, feelings as a scientist. But in my case, I actually have a young daughter. And I think one of the key things that kids now learn, which is extremely good, is that they understand climate change is a science. But in general society, they are always exposed to various similar arguments of deniability or uh, etc. So how does a young child comprehend these and what arguments should they go look for to ultimately um, convey a message that informs uh, their argument to a person who doesn't really understand this? As those in poorer countries, in
2: developing countries, where, where sea level rise is gonna take out entire villages. Um, and those folks don't have as much of a voice in trying to make policy change, in trying to help companies understand there's a different way to go here. And there's actually a more profitable way to go if you get past the, just thinking about this quarter's returns, right? So we have to kind of think about this is there's a little bit of a longer game here. And so, you know, one of the things that. the And I've for years known, yes, there's these impacts and I I know the data and I I read the papers and I help review the papers and all of that. But it didn't really hit me personally until I was working in um, Alaska where there was an indigenous, a pretty substantial indigenous population in the town we were at Um, Barrow, Alaska. And so we were out working on the sea ice. And one of the elders came out, um, they were actually getting ready for um, hunting season, and whaling and fishing and things. And they were going out and kind of scoping out the sea ice and where they might set up um, to do, you know, that season's um, hunt. And he saw us out there working and he came over and he was really interested in the science and we had a whole conversation about the science that was happening and what we were doing and why we were there and what we were sampling. And, um, and he, he started telling stories about how they, so what they do is they dig down into the permafrost. So it's frozen ground. Um, and that's where they uh, store their meat over the winter to keep it frozen. It's, it's, you know, built in freezer, so to speak, without a plug. <laughs> And so he told us stories about how, over the past decade or so, they had lost like half of their meat stores in some seasons because that permafrost was thawing, and it warmed the meat, and they they had they had to throw out spoiled meat. Um, and so there were there were times where the community they were worried, like they were they were to the point where they were going to have to ration, right? And so you know he told us stories about that, sort of these these anecdotal things, right? That that everyone says, like, oh, that's just a that's just a one off, right? But he had sort of decades of these stories built up, and one of the last things he said when we were out on the sea ice talking was that his his people, he said, we can't read the ice anymore. So there's they have this whole sort of um, you know this knowledge base buildup just from experience of they can tell like when they're out on the sea ice. That there's you know, there's a crevasse under that snow. So don't drive your snowmobile over there or you'll fall through, right? Or they can tell when ice is gonna break up or when it's getting fragile or when it's forming and really solid, right? Like they they just have this experience base that they can see that. So they he would say that that's that's what they call reading the ice. So fast forward a year, the same man is out hunting on the tundra and he takes his snowmobile over a river that's frozen over and he goes through the ice and he dies. And that conversation haunts me to this day because I wonder if it's because he couldn't read the ice. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, So that made it personal for me. Because it makes me wonder, we'll never know. We, we won't have a data measurement to say, oh, yeah, that's what happened. But me putting two and two together, I mean, he, he was in his 70s. Like, he knew he knew this area. He grew up there. And it's a, it's a trip he would have made year over year over year. And it makes me wonder, is it because... We know, you know, river ice and all of that. That's thinning too, just along with everything else. Um, was there something that day that he misread and thought it was safer than it was? And then he he died. He died. So that that's one that haunts me. And that's one that makes it personal for me.
1: So. That, yeah, that, that's a tough one. And I think um, every, everybody kind of wonders wonders what they can do. So I live in San Francisco, which is very definitely um, an opinionated and aggressively opinionated town. Uh, We always have been, whether it's been the hippy-dippy 60s of Haight-Ashbury all the way to today where um, composting is mandatory. um, The city really wants to turn this into a no-car city. They're doing everything they can politically and and, um, uh, policy-wise to try and make that happen. I'm somewhere in the middle. I, you know, I want to live my life. I love my conveniences. I love my car. I grew up in Southern California, so I'm definitely a car lover. Um, what one thing do you think, or are there several, you know, a couple little things that individuals can do to either mitigate their impact or to, to make things a little bit, even go one step further and make them a little bit better without turning into, I'm going to compost everything in the world. <laughs>
2: That that is such a good question, because I think it likely will depend on the lifestyle of the person you're talking to. Um, So, you know, we for folks for folks that live uh, uh, some of the folks that live around me they're they're already big public transit users just because of, you know, they live down in Philadelphia in the city. And it's easy. It's easier for them to just hop on SEPTA and take the train wherever they're heading. Um, so they they're already sort of a very low um you know car use kind of person, whereas me, I'm a commuter because where I'm at, there isn't really readily accessible public transit, so I gotta say this whole pandemic and working from home piece <laughs> you know are are there things that are there decisions that we can help our companies or our employers make to say you know can I make a choice after this pandemic is, is behind us to continue to work remotely um, and not commute as much? Um, you know, there's, and there's sort of like a, a graduated um, sort of system of, you, you can calculate your carbon footprint and see kind of where your impact is biggest at an individual level. Um, so like flying is a big one. So people that have to fly a lot, um, you know, that's one if it's something you still have to do, then you can think about buying carbon offsets. And so, you know, there, there are different sort of graduated things like that, that you, you could do sort of an individual analysis. You can Google carbon footprint calculator (laughs) and there's a a bazillion different, um, you know, online tools out there that would let you see your own impact and where individually you might make the biggest impact. Um, I think collectively, However, we have a much better chance of making the impact we need if we're acting in a concerted fashion collectively, because the biggest thing and the quickest thing we can do is get off entirely our reliance on fossil fuels. And to me, that's a no brainer argument, because we know if, again, thinking the long game, we're going to run out of fossil fuels and it's not it's not necessarily that we're going to run out uh, let me correct that there's scads of fossil fuels there it's when do you, when do you reach that point that it's no longer economically viable to recover the fossil fuels when the company is not going to make enough money by drilling the you know drilling the hole deeper or putting more technology in to getting that last little bit out so you're going to reach this tipping point where the companies are going to say it's no longer economically viable to get that out of the ground. So there are ways that we could we could basically kind of push that further. If you take away the subsidies, there are a lot of subsidies that the fossil fuel industry is getting that people don't recognize. Um, so folks that are you know, really fiscally conservative. If you did some homework on that, you would probably be pretty angry. Um, But the fossil fuel industry has a really great communication and marketing department, (laughs) not unlike that of tobacco in the 50s, um, that's putting out a lot of misinformation. And so we need to combat the misinformation. We need to get to a point where we convince the fossil fuel companies, whether it's through reducing the subsidies, changing the system so that there's a carbon tax whatever it is that pushes the economic conversation toward people, having people recognize there is economic value in developing and putting in place already existing technologies that we have in the renewable energy sphere. And that's, that's one of those ones that it's going to have to be your vote is going to count. You got to get, people in office that can recognize this and aren't beholden to the companies that are subsidizing their political campaigns. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to tell it Frank. (laughs) Um, So I think your vote is one of the most important things you can do to help change the direction of where things are going. And then whatever other sort of public pressure we can put on companies to get things moved in the right direction where they see there is economic benefit here. There are far more jobs that we could generate in a renewable energy infusion in infrastructure than there ever will be in propping up a dying fossil fuel industry. That's the recognition we have to have at all levels, policy, you know, economic, the companies, they know it. They know it. It's just here right now to maintain the status quo because that's infrastructure we have. That's how their companies are set up. That's the pressure they're getting from their own stakeholders. We have to shift that conversation.
0: More interesting thing. So you spent your whole career. I mean, you actually study about Arctic ice and using, uh, I mean, you actually use techniques there. So among the various other places in the earth, what are the, the interesting places to study climate change beyond just Antarctic and the Arctic. That is also something that that people in other areas uh, and, and in other parts of the world would very much love to understand. And where where is the field going? Beyond just looking at ice caps.
2: Yeah. So, so one of the reasons people focused in uh, in the Arctic and Antarctic is because that's where we're seeing climate change happening the fastest on Earth. So it's warming like five or six times faster in the Arctic than it is other places. But the entire earth system is connected. So we can learn how the things that are happening in the Arctic are gonna impact things everywhere else on earth. Um, but you know, there are all sorts of things that again, this idea of, of the, the local connection, what's happening in my day to day, what's gonna happen in my community. Um, there are already really great research projects that are happening Tied to those local impacts. Um, so I have colleagues who are studying these sort of coastal systems, and they're they're doing um, these what we call microcosm experiments, where they kind of set up a little mini um, mini environment chamber, so to speak. Um, so then they can change it um, on you know to their own parameters and see what what the effect is. Um, and so there are people that are studying, you know, if you get more saltwater intrusion, so if sea level rises and you get more saltwater intrusion farther inland, how is that going to change groundwater quality? How is that going to change the vegetation that's growing? Um, you know, one of the questions is these coastal areas that have um, a certain type of uh, sort of vegetation setup. It actually helps protect that coastal area from um, hurricanes, like the flooding and the, and the tidal surge and all that that comes with hurricanes. There, there is research that is, that's showing that if more of that salt water intrudes just as a result of a little bit of sea, sea level rise, the vegetation is going to change and you actually lose that protective kind of um, barrier, so to speak. Um, just because you've changed the vegetation and in a, in, in someone's day to day, they might not think a big thing about like, Oh, what's, you know, what's six inches of sea level rise. Well, it's that downstream impact that three steps away effect that actually can have a really significant impact. And so there are a lot of people doing studies on, you know, these sort of like coastal impacts because of sea level rise You know, a little bit of an elevation in CO2, how is that changing crop production? Um, Pests migrating, so, you know, mosquitoes and various insects that can carry disease. Um, With people doing modeling studies for temperature change and just a little bit of a temperature change, it kind of shifts things a little bit north. You could start seeing things like Zika. Far farther north than we ever would have before, you know, like the whole malaria question might start coming up again, right? In areas that never would have had to have thought about it before. Um, So it's, it's, it's all of these with one piece of data. When you say global temperature is going to rise two degrees Celsius, that means nothing to the average person. You have to take it the three steps forward to say, Because of that change, then this happens, then that happens, then that happens, and you're going to be really sorry when you see that happen, (laughs) right? That Um, context again. It's the context. It's the context that's really important. That unfortunately, you often lose the context in the 30-second soundbite on CNN or Fox News or whatever, right? Like, that's what gets lost. And so... Again, it kind of goes back to communication, right? Having people that are willing to listen to each other, to understand how we kind of need to talk about these things, that scientists need to be part of the communication piece of this. And we need to be willing to go out and talk about these things and engage with people and listen when they go off on the tangents and and bring them back in and, and say, okay, yeah, but you know, and, and bring it back to the data, the impact, the context, and how it impacts that person you're talking to and make it personal for them, which means understanding them. We can't just talk at people. We have to understand who they are, what motivates them, what drives them, what do they care about, and connect it to that thing. That's the only way in my mind we're going to make progress on this. Because if everyone just hunkers down in their you know, their stance, right? Like you envision the fighter that's like got their fists up. Like we got to get people to get their fists down and get out of the fighting stance and actually talk to each other. So so
1: you're a psychologist too. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I play one on TV. No, it, it, it's great though. I mean, there's, I think that the, the art of active listening is has been lost and understanding the person that you're talking to can um, if you want to be self serving, it can help you win arguments. If that's your own, even if that's your only motivation, but I, I like your um, your commitment to looking at things three steps forward, and I think that brings us back a little bit to one of your programs at Villanova, which is Visible. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about that and the leadership opportunities there? Yeah, um,
2: so Visible is uh, a. An initiative that we launched out of a National Science Foundation grant that we received in late 2018 from the Advanced Program. So the Advanced Program at the National Science Foundation is um, geared toward uh having women in STEM, having women advance in STEM, getting women in the pipeline for STEM um, jobs and careers. And our our focus at Villanova was essentially recognizing that Villanova as an institution is one that we're an institution sort of in transition. So we've recently, in the last few years, we made the jump to a national research university. Um, We are embarking on a new strategic plan. Uh, We've had a number of leadership changes. And so that's a lot of change for an institution to navigate just in and of itself. And there's a lot of literature that shows that In times of change and pressure and transition, that's often when we tend to kind of fall back to our status quo, what's comfortable, what's easy, you know, because we're working on changing so many other things, right? Like we're working on advancing so many other things that our, our strategic worry was that would we, in terms of sort of faculty career progression, um, how we're showing up for our students, how we're mentoring um, women in STEM, will we accidentally, not because it was an intention, but just because it's it's just it's kind of the psychology behind change management, um, would we kind of accidentally cement in policies or processes or procedures that were inadvertently icing women out of STEM? either because we couldn't get them in and hired as new faculty, we couldn't, you know, they weren't being effectively mentored and promoted and tenured and, you know, all, all those things that come along with sort of being a, a, an active faculty member at a university. And so that was sort of the, the crux of our approach for setting up Visible, which is the Villanova Initiative to support inclusiveness and build leaders. Um, it's a mouthful, Visible is a lot easier. <laughs> But the idea is trying to make visible the invisible things that tend to stymie women's careers in STEM. Um, So that's what we're kind of using this initiative and the funding from NSF to look at, at at a broad institutional basis. How are we as an institution proactively working to keep women and other marginalized groups that have historically been underrepresented in STEM how are we getting them in the system? How are we keeping them? How are we promoting them? How are we making them feel valued as part of the community so that they have job satisfaction and want to stay, right? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of resources that are put into recruiting these really talented, bright minds. If we don't have a, a culture and a community that makes them want to stay, then that's a huge lost opportunity if they go somewhere else, right? So, so that's kind of the the umbrella of what of what Visible is, and we're we're funded for a number of years, and then we hope to actually institutionalize it even after the NSF funding goes away to be uh, you know a sustainable operation at at Villanova. So,
0: yeah. So, and for the last few years, you've actually moved to a more senior leadership role in in the university. From a leadership perspective, what are your biggest challenges, Amanda, uh, as, as you progress through your, your daily work uh, there? Oh,
2: so many challenges. <laughs> um, I'd say, every, you know, being in the role that I'm in, which is essentially chief research officer um, at an institution that's kind of coming into its own in its research identity, it has been such a fun adventure. Um, but also really challenging because it makes you realize that a lot of the, a lot of the systems and supports and infrastructure that other, you know, the far more established universities that have been kind of at this for decades, um, they sort of take for granted we're building. Um, and so that's, it's been challenging, but that's been the really fun part because what it means is we can build it the way we need it and the way we want it we're not tied in to this system of, well, that's the way we've always done it, right? So we actually did a lot of benchmarking and we looked at other universities to see like what they've done well, what hasn't worked well, what we can adapt and change and, and do our way, the way that's going to work for us versus try to fit somebody else's model into, into ours. So what I always say when I'm talking to, you know, more senior leadership is, like, I fight tooth and nail against the whole keeping up with the Joneses, right? Like, we shouldn't do it just because that other peer aspirational institution is doing it. We need to do it because it's right for us and it's right for Villadova and it's right for our community. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> and yeah. Not,
2: not chase the next thing, not do that whole keep up with the Joneses model in higher ed. I think, I think there's a different way to go about things. And we're in that, that space where we can try those things and we can do those things. And I think that's what really makes my particular job really exciting. Um, and what kind of keeps me, keeps me getting out of bed every morning.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. And that looks like a great opportunity as well. So, uh, and, and, and best wishes to continue doing that. Yeah. Uh, and just to close here, we are actually told that you're a great vial labeler. Uh, what's, what's the story behind that?
2: Uh, <laughs> a vial labeler? <laughs> um, yeah. So we have, oh gosh, So so many samples, right? So all of our samples, well, many of our samples, the certain types of measurements we make, they go in these little tiny vials that go on an instrument and then the instrument kind of does its thing and makes its, its measurements. And so, um, my students, I always, I always want my students to be running the instruments and learning the instruments. And, you know, I always make them draw me a flow diagram for what's happening in the instrument. Like they have to understand. (laughs) And so, um, some people tend to have, tend to have this sense of like, Oh, well you, you do the grunt work and I, I, do you know as as the as the senior person i i will work with the expensive piece of equipment right i'm the complete opposite i'm the one that's like student you need to learn how to run this expensive piece of equipment because that's what you're gonna have to do when you go out in real life and you know get a job in industry or something um let me do the grunt work i'll sit here and label all the vials (laughs) that have to go in and you do your thing on the instrument so um yeah so my student's um, give me the grunt work. So,
1: <laughs> well, so I'm a really
2: file labeler. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I, I did the same thing for my kids when I taught them how to clean the house when they were four and five. I drew out pictograms, said, okay, three squirts of Clorox, take the scratchy side of the sponge, and I'm going to sit back and I'll, I'll do some other job while you learn hands-on. Um, life I, skills. It's important. Life skills. So I want I want to thank you really for coming on. I, I really appreciate your um, passionate yet pragmatic approach to everything that we've talked about. I, I think that um, for me, especially um, the attention to context and calling that out as something that that um, always needs to be present in scientific discussions was incredibly valuable. Um, and I wish you the best of luck with your research and and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much this has been a real pleasure
0: thank you our sound editor is Sayantin Chandran the soundtrack was digger by Dad. you can find their collections on apple itunes store google play store spotify and many other platforms this is arun and jojo signing off